Spotlights. You are listening to Marvel's pull list for new comics on sale March 31st, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Yeah, we are going to tell y'all about all the brand new comics on sale this week. We're going to tell you about what's hitting Marvel Unlimited, some collections on sale. We have a delightful interview for our reading club this week. Who are we talking to this week, Tucker? This week, we are talking to the incredible Kalinda Vasquez. What an incredible writer, writer, of course, of America Chavez made in the USA. And we're breaking down Silk, the 2015 series. Just a great discussion on a great book. Let's dive into our books this week um, because we're going to tell you our favorites, our picks of the week alongside some well, what are we calling them this week, Tucker? We've done Pulitzer Prizes. Our pulleys are the traditional ones. What do you want to use this week? <sighs> this is a good question. Um, maybe um, the Bill Pullman Awards. That's what came to We are to giving mind. out our Bill Pullmans for this episode. Uh, if you don't know who Bill Pullman is, <laughs> delightful actor. Go check him out. It works because there is a special bill that we're going to be talking about in today's episode. There is, there is. All right, let's dive into things with our first pick of the week, which is Silk Number One, and it is written by Maureen Gu, art by Takeshi Miyazawa, colors by Ian Herring, and letters by VCs Ariana Mar, a delightful cover by Stonehouse. This one gets my Bill Pullman of the week for Welcome Back Analog. We told you we're going to be talking about Silk later in the episode, and I freaking love Silk. I love the Silk comics. I love Silk the character. I think she's delightful. Her name is Cindy Moon, and if you don't know her, she was actually bitten by the same radioactive spider that bit Peter Parker. But while Peter went off and did what he did, Cindy was basically taken to the side and basically put into a sort of quote-unquote, protective custody by Ezekiel, mysterious man who was trying to protect her and fight against Moreland. It's a whole big storyline. Definitely check out the Amazing Spider-Man run from 2014, which dives into that, and then into Spider-Verse, as well as the Silk comics that we'll be talking about later. But she hasn't had her own book in a little while, so we, we pick up with Cindy, and it's like, welcome back. She is getting chatted with by J. Jonah Jameson, who is the one who calls her analog. And they're both in different circumstances, but she's just just amazing. It's really fun. It's poppy. It's exciting. It's fun. It's funny. It's got great action. It's got some new characters. It's got intrigue. And it's taking Silk, taking Cindy a couple steps forward, picking her up a little bit further along in her storyline. I really loved it. Of course, Takeshi Miyazawa, terrific artist, gets that like younger vibe, get some fashion vibes in there. When I look at Takeshi's artwork, there's just like the fluidity of movement, which works really well for a spider character such as Cindy Moon, aka Silk. And it's funny. There's just wonderful little bits and pieces here. I, I can't recommend all the Silk comics enough, and I'm very glad we have a brand new book. My pick this week, boy, oh boy, Beta Ray Bill, number one. First thing I'll say about it, this book made me cry. It's written in and illustrated by Daniel Warren Johnson with colors by Mike Spicer and letters by VCs Joseph Bino with Daniel Warren Johnson. The place that Daniel places Bill in here is so vulnerable. We jump headfirst into this story. We have such a cool fight sequence between Bill and Fin Fang Foom, who is a little bit different than what we're used to. This book overall, I think, has a very independent spirit, indie book 
kind of create her own book, really unique, idiosyncratic visual style. And then where it dares to go emotionally is amazing. And there's a scene in here that I just found so incredibly impactful. I don't want to talk about who it's with, what happens. I implore you, listener, Mm -hmm. to go read it. It is gorgeous. What happens is heartbreaking. And there's a double page spread in here. You know, double page spread, you automatically think, huge, that's going to be a huge, crazy action scene. It's going to be some keyframe of like Bill with a hammer smashing Fin Fang Foom, something crazy. But it's not that. And the glory and the emotion and like I said at the very beginning, the vulnerability that he places this character into is amazing. And there's a conversation that Bill has at the end of this where he says this line that destroyed me. The tone that we end this issue on is incredible. I haven't been this excited about a book in a while. This is one of those that I could talk about for hours and hours and hours. I'll stop myself here, but an emphatic go read it to Beta Ray Bill number one. I think Daniel Warren Johnson is a creator who's probably new to a lot of our listeners, to folks who just read Marvel comics. I remember first hearing his name when people were talking about Green Leader. Green Leader is a fan comic that Daniel did about Star Wars. And the emotion, the action, the storytelling. And this was like six years ago when when he first put this out. He is so good about being able to give you that giant widescreen action than the giant widescreen heartbreak. I freaking love this book so much. I suggest everybody get Beta Ray Bill number one, but also check out the other stuff he's done because he's so dang good. And um, Beta Ray Bill is is an example of um, him being so damn good, being the writer, being the artist, telling this the story he wants to tell. It's great. Also great, the third pick for this week which is X-Men number 10. This issue is written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Mahmoud Asrar, colors by Sonny Go, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. I don't even know what Will Pullman to give it, just breaking Ryan's heart of the week award. <laughs> so this tells sort of the second part of the story about a secret espionage team of mutants that have gone in to infiltrate the children of the vault. We previously talked about the children. They're this sort of super evolved race uh, of beings and they fought the X-Men before and there's some cool stories. And we saw them go into the vault before. The team is Sink and Wolverine, aka Laura, Kinney, and Darwin. And three of them sort of in this way that all the X-Books are so brilliant about now is like they are a circuit together. Darwin has the ability to evolve and survive anything. Sink can mimic any powers he's close to. And Wolverine is friggin' Wolverine. She can survive just about anything. This is the tale of what happens when they are in the vault. And I don't want to give anything away, but it is there in there for a very long period of time. Time moves differently within the vault. And so you follow them across a great expanse of time and you follow the vault across that time as well. And the threat that the vault presents to mutant kind, the toll that all this takes on these characters, it is um, really wonderful storytelling hinged on emotional beats while still giving you that big fight punch book that you want out of uh, an X-Men. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a perfect X-Men book. It's great. 
Before we go into our Bill Pullman Awards of the Week, our pulleys, I'll say just real quickly, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today we celebrate our Bill Pullman Awards, I guess. Okay. We're kicking things off with Avengers Curse of the Man-Thing number one, which if you're a Man-Thing fan like I am, one of my all-time favorite Marvel Comics characters, I think you will definitely dig. I mean, this book is incredible. It looks unlike any other book. The art in here is gorgeous. The story that's being told, I think, is really unique. It's both at times really emotional, but also so brutal. This team is not holding back on this issue. I want to give my Bill Pullman Award, though, specifically to Guru EFX. I think some of the best colors that you can see in Marvel Comics consistently come from Guru AFX. Just incredible work week in, week out, no matter what character, no matter what series, no matter what we're looking at. Just beautiful stuff. And like I said, if you're a Man-Thing fan, this is a great long-awaited return and spotlight for the character. Yeah. All right. Over to a perennial favorite of ours, Black Cat. We have issue number four out this week. This sort of reintroduces an established character in a new role in the Marvel Universe. If you are a a Spider-Man fan who's read a lot of Amazing Spider-Man, particularly by Dan Slott, there's a character in here, and I don't want to spoil anything, who shows up after what seemed like their demise and some, some bad stuff had happened to them. So it's cool to see them back in things. And they are going up against Black Cat. And Felicia kind of takes a back seat in this issue in really great ways to establish this other character. And it all sort of comes to a head by the end of the issue where you get this wonderful fight between the two characters. As a reader, you know whose book it is. You know what's going to happen. You know where each of these characters stands and, and how long they've been around and doing stuff. But to see it go down is is really interesting, and I love the way it's it it shakes out. A uh, really great final bit here at the end, and a very cool introduction for what this character can do. Look, our, our pal Jed McKay. I feel like all Marvel fans are going to be hearing that name more and more mm-hmm. and more over time. My Bill Pullman for this one would be cheesily cat scratch fever because i couldn't come up with a better one for it so i went full cheese on it next book this week is captain america number 28 i was thinking a lot about where we've been over the course of tanahasi coates run with the star spangled avenger you know it's been 28 issues now we are seeing this creative team bow out with issue number 30 so we are quickly on our way to the end of this story More than anything, what I thought about is how restrained this story has been. The story that is being told here about Cap the figure and Cap the fighter has been a really, really fascinating thing to behold over the course of these 28 issues. So now as we ramp things up towards the end, this one might get my Bill Pullman Award for a book that I think is emblematic of where we've been over the course of these 28 issues. So I don't know, Bill Pullman Award for just made me think, made me appreciate it of the week. All right, let's get into some King and Black action with King and Black Ghost Rider number one. This gets my Bill Pullman of the week for uh-ohs of the week, particularly by the end. This is really kind of like the, feels like a culmination of the Ghost Rider story. Ed Brisson was telling different stories of Johnny Blaze as King of Hell and all kinds of stuff with Mephisto. It all comes to a head in the midst of the giant King and Black crossover. But the last couple of beats, particularly around where the characters end up and where they're going are very fascinating. There's something that a character holds onto by the end, which I feel like 
that's your Chekhov's goo right there. Some, <laughs> some point, somewhere, we're going to see that used, and I, I can't wait to see what happens there. Oh, yeah. All right, next up in the King in Black realm is King in Black Return of the Valkyries number four. I think this might have been the first issue co-written by Thorin Gronback that we've covered since our discussion with Thorin. If you didn't hear that, go back and, and check out our reading club with Thorin. We, we talked about 1602. That chat really just made me appreciate what Thorin and Jason Aaron are doing in the entire Valkyrie realm in general. I love these books. I love the direction that these books are going. I love the characters and the characterizations that they've put into their stories together. It made me feel like Null is a character purpose built for Jason Aaron and Thorne to write. There's just something in it that feels like, oh, that's a character at home in this series really, really perfectly. This is a really, really fun tie-in series. I think there's a lot to enjoy here. So, hey, Bill Pullman Award of the Week to Thorne Gronbeck, a favorite and an incredible creator. Well said. One more King in Black issue this week. It is Symbiote Spider-Man King in Black number five. For anybody who hasn't been reading this book, it's A-plus bonkers. It's Peter David just being like, I'm just going to do this. No one can stop me. And no one can stop him. He's got Spider-Man when he had the black symbiote suit back in the day fighting alongside Kang, alongside Rocket Raccoon, alongside Monica Rambeau in her original outfit, alongside a pair of trolls, and they're fighting a rogue symbiote. It is Weird and wild, and my Bill Pullman Award goes to Uatu, because Uatu gonna Uatu. <laughs> Watcher's gonna watch, but because he's Uatu, he's gonna do a whole lot more than that, and it's hilarious. The book is very funny. It's very cool. I love how it threads into continuity, but also like just exists on its own. Yeah. Next up, we're covering The Union, number four which has a bunch of wild action. This series has been so fun because... I think it's just fully embracing its remit. It's fully embracing this team of British heroes set in the UK, and I just love it. I'm, I'm delighting in it so much. It's really, really great fun. My Bill Pullman Award has to go out to The Last Beef Eater, one of the best characters that I've seen pop up in a while. So awesome. And like I said, it's, it's just so fun and takes full ownership of the book that it's in. It's great. I also can't go without mentioning Andrea DeVito because I think the art in here is something to behold. Really, really beautiful stuff in pairing with one of the great colorists we have with Nolan Woodard. Really beautiful art in the series. Yeah. Shout out to the only listener I know of ours who lives in the in the UK, Karis Pollard, who carries the torch for posting pulley awards every week. Karis, we see you. Yes. And even if you're not going to put in the effort to give us a different <laughs> name for it every week, I appreciate the efforts. I see all those tweets. Definitely follow Karis on the Twitter. Uh, all right. Two more books to go. We've got U.S. Agent number four. Tucker, have you ever heard of a show Parker Lewis Can't Lose? Uh, no. Well, you, you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. I will say my Bill Pullman award goes to this one because John Walker can't win. Let's play uh. around with it a little bit. Man, poor John Walker, <laughs> just having a tough time of it. If you are someone who is watching Marvel Studios, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and you see John Walker and you're like, who's this guy? We have a book featuring John Walker 
getting into all kinds of stuff and you get to see some of like the issues around this dude and, and what's going on and where he is after, you know, 30 years of Marvel Comics storyline. Who knows what's going to happen with him in the uh, the MCU, but um, this one is really cool. And it's, look, it's Christopher Priest. It's great. Yeah, totally. All right, we're wrapping things up this week with X-Men Legends number two. And if you're looking for some classic 90s X-Men action, this is the story for you. It's placed back in continuity in 90s X-Men. It's written by Fabian Nicieza, so it has all the hallmarks of that. And I just love, like, I, I think similar to what I was saying with The Union, I love how much it owns what it is in every single way, thematically, the way the characters are drawn, the way that so much is packed into each page, it really just works. It feels like a perfect time capsule, especially if you are a fan of that era or if you're just curious about it, to dive into it, to see where this piece of the puzzle can fit in. So my Bill Pullman Award definitely goes to that 90s vibe. I will say... For everybody else out there who wants to see Cyclops be a big ding-dong and, and <laughs> get an awkward moment, there's a great awkward Cyclops moment towards the end of this issue, which was like, Scott, you're such a ding-dong. <laughs> yeah, well said. Uh, that's what we have for new individual mags on shelves this week. Coming in the form of collections now, we have a bunch of of great stuff. I will give a particular shout out to Shang-Chi by Jean Luen Yang, Volume 1, Brothers and Sisters, another one of those characters. If you've heard the name, if you're curious about Shang-Chi, check it out. That's a great new series. Uh, I was excited to read it all sequentially in a collection that felt like one that's going to really find its home uh, in collection form. Good stuff. Yeah. Over on Marvel Unlimited, a couple of books this week. Uh, the second issue of King in Black is now on MU alongside Spider-Woman number seven, which is a King in Black issue. It's really great. Uh, the final issue, I believe, of Doctor Doom, which is absolutely terrific. So good, that book. And even US Agent number two. So you can read two issues of US Agent and get caught up on that book a little bit more. That's on MU. Tucker, are you ready for our reading club? <sighs> We'll see. I've been trying to prep myself, but uh, we're just going to have to dive head first. Let's go for it. Tucker, Chet, Marcus, are you ready to get silked? Is that a thing? Is that what we say to talk about silk? Okay. Yes and no in reverse <laughs> order. It is to get silked, but I am not prepared. I tried to mentally prepare for a conversation with the wonderful Kalinda Vasquez today, but I don't know if I'm there yet. Kalinda, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to talk about Silk with you. I'm really excited to talk about America with you. I guess to dive right into it, what made you pick Silk, the character, for us to read today and this edition in particular, this series? Well, I have to confess something to you. I'm married to Robbie Thompson. Dun, dun, dun. Who twist? <laughs> well, it's not the twist that he wrote a wonderful arc. It is perhaps the twist that he is married to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'm married to one of the writers who uh, has written this care. And so I kind of had like a an inside out perspective. I hadn't read, I believe that Silk first appeared in a run of Dan Slott's Superior Spider-Man. Is that correct? It was from The Amazing Spider-Man number four that came out about a year before 
this uh, issue, this series came out? So uh, I was not, I have since gone back and, and read all those issues and they're super fun. But at the time I hadn't, and, and Robbie was like, yeah, I have the opportunity to maybe write this character and she's in the Spider-Verse and, uh, you know, she's Korean American. And I'm like, oh, this sounds awesome. You know, tell me more. And so he didn't like share the story with me as he was, you know, I know Ellie Pyle was his uh, editor at the time and he would come out of conference calls and be super jazz and like, you know, this is awesome. And then, you know, Stacy's art coming in and being super excited about that. And I was like, it's one of those things where, you know, obviously, you know, you root for your spouse, you root for your partner and, and people that you care about. Right. But then when it's something that they work on actually like kind of creatively hits a nerve, that's always very nice too. And with Silk, I loved her voice from Gate, you know, the way that he kind of used captions for her character so that we were in her head. And she has that kind of wry sense of humor. I mean, the book as a whole is beautiful. Uh, you know, Stacey Lee and then Tana Ford, who came in, her art is amazing too. So, you know, it just looks so beautiful. But I was really just engaged by Cindy's story. It's like very sad. And then there's happier moments. And then it gets sad again, which is very Robbie. Like he kind of prides himself the bittersweet twist. So yeah, it's exciting to have the opportunity to chat about it with you guys. Yeah, I was super glad when I saw you pick this we are a big Robbie Stan podcast, so we're big fans of Robbie's work. This is, it's such a good, really wonderful seven-issue storyline. There's something to be said that, like, you can go in, tell a story, and it ends on such a, a note that your, like, heart explodes from it. I'm rereading, and I was like, man, that ending, I forgot about it, and it absolutely crushed me. <laughs> oh, Robbie. You jerk. He likes to do that. He likes to crush people's <laughs> hearts. No, but I mean, I think, you know, the story with her family and her brother, you know, I have two kid brothers. I'm the oldest in my family. And so right away, I was vibing on that storyline of a big sister and how big sisters like to look out for their kid brothers, I think kind of traditionally in storytelling. We've seen a lot of like big brothers looking out for like kid sisters or big brothers looking out for kid brothers. But that specific pairing, I just thought was like very sweet and it really spoke to me. There's a great moment specifically that as you were talking about it, made me think back to the moment where Albert and Cindy are walking down the street and she's like, I love you. And he's like, I love you. And it's just really just the best. It's really it wonderful just stuff. The, and when just that kind of banter between them, and she's like, you know, you just wait till you're a teenager. You might be weird too. And it's like, you know what else is weird? White chocolate. It's just that kind of like <laughs> specific humor that you can share with a family member, uh, with a sibling, yeah. somebody that you've grown up with, I think was captured very well. I'm curious, as you were starting the process in writing America, America Chavez made in the USA. Did you have any discussions with Robbie specifically about the idea of, I think America is maybe just about, been around for about 10 years. Cindy at the time of this series being written was 
really fresh character. Did you have any conversations about what it's like to, just by the nature of how new these characters are, forging new ground? Tell me if I'm wrong. It feels like a different prospect writing America Chavez versus Captain America, just by the fact that Cap has been around 80 years and America has been around 10 years. Did you have any discussions about that? And do you have any thoughts about that challenge? Just generally speaking, was that something that you saw as a difficulty? Do you see that as an opportunity coming on board? What were your thoughts on that? We definitely had conversations about how do you, I'm searching for the word, like re-platform, reintroduce, like maybe carry the torch on is, is kind of the best way of phrasing it for a character who has been around and how do you, you know, push the character's story forward And, you know, he had some insights, which were also like very true, but also the classic kind of frustrating thing of like, well, it's a balance, you know, it's like you want to honor what came before while forging new territory. You want to be fresh, but don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. It's just like, for me, it's always exciting when working with existing characters to see something new as well and to do something new. I think Also for me, with America specifically, I felt a tremendous amount of responsibility because she is Latinx and she is queer and there historically have not been so many of those characters in comics. And I really wanted to do right by her, you know, and I I really wanted to honor her legacy while also digging deeper going to places that hadn't been explored before. And so that was definitely a little nerve wracking, but it was also fun. It was an exciting challenge. Yeah, um, I'm excited for us to get more issues of that series to talk about here on the show. But um, I want to go back a little bit and sort of think about your origins. I read a, an essay you wrote about why you write and oh, in there talking about your connection to Star Trek, (laughs) which was cool. And for any of our listeners who are big Star Trek fans, you have some really cool connections to Star Trek, both professionally, but personally too. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about how you are connected to Star Trek as a fan? And then what were your like fan connections, if any, to Marvel as you were younger? So as far as Star Trek goes, my father was a huge fan ever since original series came out. And apparently, as lore goes, my mom was a few months pregnant and a rerun of an old original series came on TV. And this episode featured a guest star character whose name was Kalinda. And he was like, by Jove, I've got it. I will name my daughter (laughs) Kalinda because I guess he just really liked the name and thought it would be cool to pull it from the Star Trek verse. So basically as early as I can remember, I always knew what Star Trek was from reruns on TV. And then I was pretty young when Next Gen came out. Um, So I grew up watching those episodes and have seen all the movies and definitely carried on the fandom. But kind of similarly, my dad wasn't like a I'm at the comic book store every Wednesday type of guy, but there were definitely comics around the house going up. Like I remember seeing Spider-Man comics around uh, the house and, and, you know, at a very young age, I was just drawn in honestly by like the color palette and the artwork. 
I thought was very cool and dynamic. And I might be dating myself here, but the thing that my dad really loved in comics were the amalgam comics. That When you say you're dating yourself, that makes me feel so old because Amalgam was when I was, you know, like that I was in my early teens, probably. Oh, no. I loved Amalgam. Amalgam was great. But I think really, you know, I was drawn into these larger than life characters who had these aspirational abilities. You know, it's like... Who wouldn't want to be, you know, a member of the X-Men team? Who wouldn't want to be? I mean, I guess back then there wasn't really a, as big of a Spider-Verse as there was now, but there was still Spider-Man and Spider-Ham. You know, I was very curious. And then I think as I got older and I started being able to curate my own media and not just consume what my dad left lying around the house or what he happened to be watching on TV... It was cool to go into a comic book store and just, you know, explore and kind of see what was there. And I think I was like already a bit older. I remember a Marvel run that I really liked, which would end up playing a part in my life later on, was picking up Brian K. Vaughn's Runaways and being like, oh my God, this feels so different because it's superheroes but like they're young people and it had this like freshness to it and was very exciting. And then I had the honor of working on the show years later. And that was awesome too. As I'm sure you guys relate, it's like 20 years ago, there wasn't as much content for us to consume. If you were a comic book fan, not as many adaptations as there are now. And so it was exciting to work on that show. And it's also just been exciting to look at all the cross-pollination that kind of like goes on nowadays where like runs of comics are made into these like epic movies. And then there are TV shows that are offshoots of the movies, but then they also incorporate storylines of the other comics. And it's like a web bringing it back to Cindy Moon and the Spider-Verse. It's like this (laughs) web of narrative uh, and awesomeness. To keep digging into that vein, you know, you've ended up working in film and television and comics across media. Can you trace back and say this genre or specific piece of media was hugely influential to not just what I like, but what I do today? Look, I've always loved genre. It's such a broad term, right? And I feel like it's used so widely to incorporate everything from science fiction to fantasy and horror. But there is something about otherworldly stories that step outside of reality that have always really drawn me in, I think, for a few different reasons. One is, as I alluded to before, there's such a wish fulfillment uh, element to it, which is like, who wouldn't want to hop in a spaceship and like go around the galaxy? Who wouldn't want to be able to fly or have super strength? I think there's a wonderful level of escapism there. I know that people are different in how they consume stories, right? So like for me, if I have like a tough day at the office, I want to go somewhere else. Like I want to go to Middle Earth. I want to go to outer space. Like take me away from all this death, you know? It's just like kind of like a break. And at the same time though, even with all those like huge, you know, world building elements, I'm drawn into stories that are super character driven and emotional and have something to say. And I think that 
working in this type of sandbox allows you to work in allegory, allows you to use metaphor, allows you to make social commentary in a way that maybe feels a little more subtle than a straight drama would. But, you know, it's interesting as far as like recent kind of big turning points, like I remember watching the show Lost and being like the use of flashback in that show, I thought was so effective. And I think it's, you know, bringing it back to the comics world, I think Robbie used flashback really, really effectively in Silk. And uh, I was inspired to use flashback in America. I think that playing around with time uh, is a really interesting way to tell a story for me. I don't know. Hopefully that answered some of your questions. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. You know, you talked about working on Runaways and, and you know, some of your other work in TV and some of the influences in terms of storytelling and your affinities and stuff. Are there comics that sort of helped you think about the direction you wanted to be as a comic book writer, both for America and other work that you've done? Was there something that you read that went, hmm, that's, I like that? Or you wanted to dig into a script from a specific creator what was it for you? I definitely went and revisited Silk for sure because I thought it was a wonderful portrayal of a young woman, a woman of color who's trying to figure out really who she is, not just as a person, but as a superhero. Kamala Khan, Miss Marvel, G. Willa Wilson. Like, I honestly go back and I like reread those first six to 12 issues, like every couple of years, because I think they're phenomenal. And I think they're really inspiring. I, I think that run is just emblematic of what like comics can really do, which is launch this character. This is a young Muslim woman. Definitely we have not seen a hero like her before, Yet her voice was so unique and it was so specific and it went beyond stereotypes. And in fact, it kind of like upended stereotypes all while giving us a glimpse into, you know, her life and her culture and her values and, and also like just being an awkward teen, which like I was a very awkward teen. Uh, so I could relate to that. And really I felt like kind of painted the picture of the birth of a hero, you know, how is a hero born? Like, what does a hero go through to forge not only their bodies, but like their hearts, their minds, their souls into like doing the right thing. And there's that moment where this girl who's been so mean to her at school, like falls into the water and she has to save her. Right. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to set all this petty stuff aside and set aside the fact that, like, you might not rescue me from the lake and drowning, but, like, that doesn't matter because I'm a hero and I'm going to rescue you. There's also that, like, amazing quote that the character references where it's like, save one man, you save all of humanity, something like that. So that's definitely another run that I go back to. You know, I think in the last few years, there's been a lot more expansion as far as the type of characters that you get to see in comics and also specifically in Marvel comics. And that's been exciting. To take us back into Silk number one, 
I want to shout out the credits. It's written, of course, by Robbie Thompson with art by Stacy Lee, colors by Ian Herring, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. With an issue number one, I, I, you know, for me, it would feel overwhelming of saying like every sentence more than ever has got to count, you know, because we are establishing maybe someone's first time ever encountering this character, but certainly the tone and the concepts, thematic ideas that we're playing with moving forward in this story. Is that something that you think about a lot? Is that something that you're aware of coming into it where you go, okay, this number one, I have to plan it so meticulously that it can be called back to, you know, in issue 15 or 20 or whatever it might be? Or are you able to just quiet the room and say, let's just write a a story? The quick answer is yes to both. I definitely was like, oh my God, issue number one, you know, this has to grab the reader, has to grab the audience. And just want to give a shout out to Carlos, who I've been working with on the artwork for America Chavez. He's been such an amazing collaborator in this process. And I think his art is so amazing and the colors that Jesus has done. And a little piece of connectivity to Silk, the letterer for America is also VCs, Travis Lanham. So there you go. I think the whole team has just been amazing. And Annalise Bisa has really helped to lead the charge too. But yeah, I mean, feeling the pressure of that number one, I think the TV equivalent of that is the pilot of a show, right? Like you want the pilot to grab people, you know, with the storyline, you want to endear the audience to the characters, get them emotionally invested, leave people wanting more, but don't give away so much of the mystery and the plot that people are like, oh, I already know what this whole thing is. So I do think it is like a huge balancing act and the pressure is on. But for me personally, if I'm to get any work done, I do need to then go through that emotional turmoil and then quiet the room and say, okay, I have to keep all those things in mind. I'm not doing this alone. There's a whole team of people working on this book. Let me just try and do my part and get something down on the page. And for me, once the first draft is done, there's like this weight off my shoulders, even if I end up rewriting the entire thing. It's like, well, at least there was something there to rewrite. You know, I know the process for artists is very different, but like the blank page can be scary. (laughs) (laughs) As we're talking, I reached out to the editors who helped sort of forge this silk title ahead, Ellie Pyle, who she left Marvel right before the book started to take off. And thankfully, Ellie has come back to Marvel so I can pick her brain. And then the incomparable Nick Lowe, I reached out to them because I really love Silk's costume. That's one of the things I wanted to make sure we point out here. These covers by Dave Johnson on this run are just gorgeous and super fun. So I wanted to make sure I gave credit properly. So Umberto Ramos first created the Silk look and and she had like the webbing and then what she had in Spider-Verse, a different look. But then after that, Dave Johnson sort of refined the look a bit at spider legs, added the S on the chest, the red fade, and really like took a good costume into like great. Like the look that Silk has in this book, especially Stacey Lee's like art just jumps off the page. Oh, yeah. It works so well. It's really nice. It's amazing. And there's actually, I'm looking at like the first trade right now. 
And there's that image in the title page of silk hanging upside down and just the art and the colors really do it so much justice. And the the way that the red pops against kind of the monochromatic black and gray is just very visually arresting. You know, talking about silk, we've been talking about America, stories both family is such an important part of these characters and what's driving them and the stories that are being told. And then thinking about the conversation we had about your dad and growing up and and that stuff. And I think about myself today, I was like unboxing and trying to, we just moved into a house. So I'm putting, trying to put stuff away. I had a box that just said Nintendo on it and I opened it up and it's my original NES. Oh my God. A ton of games. (laughs) And I think, I can't wait for, you know, my daughter, who's now 18 months old, I can't wait for her to play NES with me. The controller would be perfect for her hands. And I thought there's a thing in my head of people would be like, well, if you try to get your kid into something that you're into, they're going to rebel. They're not going (laughs) to like it. I wonder about that and how true or not true it'll be for me because everybody's got a different experience. And then I think about your household where you've got both of you Marvel Comics writers with you know, the TV shows and Runaways and Once Upon a Time and Supernatural and all this cool stuff. And I'm sure it's like this, I imagine it's a cool, nerdy household. How much is is in your head about exposing that to, to your next generation? That's a great question. We definitely have a nerdy household. There's no question. And while I know this is audio only, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of action figures and nerdy prints hanging on the wall just here in my office. But it's funny, you know, Robbie and I just had a son nine months ago, and we joke that our son is going to be a total jock quarterback. He's <laughs> like, oh, forget comic books. You guys are nerds. <laughs> like, it's interesting. I Because I definitely had like a rebellious phase, but it just didn't manifest as far as rejecting media stuff. Like I genuinely loved like the sci-fi movies and the comic books. So it was like, well, I'm going to hang on to that because that's mine now. You know, I felt like a sense of ownership over it. So he is going to like what he's going to like. And hopefully that includes some nerdy stuff. We've emotionally are preparing ourselves for the fact that it may <laughs> not. Yeah. As we progress through this Silk story, some of the action here, I just, I love it so much. I think Stacey Lizar is incredible and so pitch perfect to go back to that like it is such a mind-blowing thing of you Kalinda being in that quiet office you're sitting in and you're writing an action sequence for America Chavez and then it can be a thing that goes from your head and then it's a real thing and as comic book lovers, you know, I think the experience of seeing a transcendent, amazing action sequence that marries the action itself with character beats all at the same time, you're getting an emotional experience as you're witnessing something incredible at this big spectacle. It can be as cathartic as going to a movie theater and, and seeing something like that. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that, on seeing a thing that started in your dome and then it ends up in a real place that is a complete joy for a reader or a viewer to behold. What does that feel like? 
It's really amazing, actually. You know, it's funny. So Carlos Gomez, the artist on America, resides in Spain. So there's a pretty big time difference between, you know, L.A. and where he lives. And so his sketches and his inks will come in for me at like two, three, four in the morning, which is also a time that when you have a young child, you may often be awake. (laughs) (laughs) So... It's like, oh, it's two in the morning. Feed the baby. Put him down. Oh, my God, I need to see the art that Carlos has sent. <laughs> like, and that, you know, being excited uh, every time I open the email because he really just kind of defies expectations. And it's always even more awesome than I hoped it would be. And one of the fun things about getting to work with him over five issues is I would start to write in scripts like, Carlos, I trust you. I know you'll make this awesome. (laughs) Like, you know, to really just have like a shorthand of like, hey, this is kind of like the panel layout that I have in my head, but like, you should go and run with it. I know you will and you will make it amazing. And so I think having that, back and forth with another creative individual is really fun and satisfying because of course he adds so much to it and he really takes it and makes it his own. And then, you know, Jesus comes in with the colors and that just adds this whole other, you know, layer on it. And then Travis comes in, you know, and does the lettering and it's like at each stage you see like all the these amazing layers get put on to it. And so, I mean, this is perhaps a cheesy analogy, but I'm going to say it. It's like planting this kind of like weird looking bulb in the soil. Then you come back and it's like this amazing flower and it's like, whoa, how did this happen? (laughs) It's like, oh, because all these other amazing artists like put their work on it. And so it's very cool. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the characters that show up in the book, aside from, of course, Cindy Moon. Uh, We've got Spider-Man and Black Cat, but there's, uh, of course, J. Jonah Jameson. And I love Robbie's Jonah. (laughs) Analog. I love that he calls her analog. Yes. (laughs) Nicknaming her analog, which I'm very glad that nickname has is, is come back in the new Silk series. But on top of that, the characters Lola and Rafferty, who would show back up later on in other stories. And then particularly Dragonclaw, who has this great little arc through this series. It's, I mean, this is the only time this villain, Harris Porter, has shown up you have this like connection because Cindy has this connection because Robbie and the artists are so good at like building those emotional beats in, in very short interactions. It's a very skilled way to thread the needle, to bring a, a, you know, a bad guy in, have him show up for like one page here, two pages here, you know, a couple of things and a reference over the course of seven issues. And for a reader to be super emotionally invested that by the end, you're like, where's my dragon club? Where, where, you know, like, he's like, I, can I help? And that moment at the end where Cindy's like, no, go be with your daughter, but thank you. And like, I'm like, man, that is, that is some spectacular stuff, right? There. I agree. And I think, you know, one of the things that is such a joy to read is like, you can tell that Robbie and Stacy are having so much fun as they're doing their thing. And obviously, you know, my, my insider look is into Robbie's brain and he learned how to read 
from Marvel Comics. Like he's been reading Fantastic Four and all these different Marvel heroes. So he'd like come out of his office one day and be like, I figured out how I'm going to get the Fantastic Four and like Human Torch all the way. And I was like, okay, that sounds awesome. Like Galactus (laughs) is going to be in it, you know? And so (laughs) being able to weave in all these characters, but not just make it like cameos for the sake of cameos, because of course those are going to be fun, but to have them, you know, have real meaning. Is it a different experience for you to read a book that, is written by Robbie Thompson. Can you separate yourself from it in that way? Or are you inevitably going to happen upon some like offhanded phrase or something? You're like, oh, you love saying that. That's your, you, you say that all the time and I can feel it in this book. I'm taken out of it. Or is it something that you can, you know, if, if you didn't look at the credits page, and you pick something up and you read it, that you could have a, a totally independent experience from, or, or is it too close, too close to home? I mean, look, I, it would be an interesting, like, test, right? (laughs) Be a a comic and and see if I could guess who wrote it. I feel like I do see him and hear him though on a lot of the pages. Some of it, it's because it's just little references. Like I think he talks about the Brennan and Connor facility or something. Those are his two nephews. So, you know, little things like that, but also... I hear him in Silk's voice. I definitely hear him in Spidey's voice, that kind of wise cracking demeanor, always like a bit of a smart ass, frankly. Uh, <laughs> With a little bit of self-deprecating in there. Yes. I definitely feel like I can hear him in that. That makes it very fun to read. You know, there's something endearing about that, but as I think I mentioned before, what's also exciting is like, just because I recognize the voice doesn't mean I know what's going to happen every issue. And I think the other nice part is like, there were twists and turns in this book that really took me by surprise, you know, and I've definitely have gone to him after reading an issue of comics that he's written and been like, okay, but what's going to happen next? Like this character's going to be okay, right? Tell me they're going to be Okay. <laughs> He's like, you're going to have to wait. <laughs> well, well, jumping right on the back of that, this is a question that we've asked Danny Lore and Vita Ayala because they're best friends. And I was so interested to hear about their discussions when they're writing their own books and then coming together and being like, oh, this happens, you know, having those, those chats. Is that something that you and Robbie do when you're breaking a story, when you're writing a scene and you come to each other and say like, what do you think about this dialogue? Whatever it might be. Is that something you kick around at the dinner table? I would say we definitely bring it to the dinner table. It's usually more macro. So it's less like, I was thinking of this line of dialogue and more like, I'm thinking like this idea of, you know, America Chavez landing on the beach, you know, like more kind of big picture. Like, what do you think about that? So it's really kind of pieces. And then two days later, it's like, you know, what if there was a fire in Washington Heights? So, you know, that we can't necessarily piece together the whole narrative, but then when we read each other's work, it's like, oh yeah, I remember we were having a conversation about, you know, fire in Washington Heights. As we sort of wrap up on the discussion here, I want to talk about number seven, the final issue of this run, um, because it it ends as the universe, the multiverse. Everything is ending as the entire Marvel line goes into Secret Wars. And I remember being at Marvel and, and the discussions of like, all right, some books 
You'll see how they they are like factoring into the, the big struggle that is going on that leads us into what is happening. And some books are like reflecting on these things. And Silk is a book that reflects upon the events and, and seeing New York City sort of things going really, really wrong. And there's there's a couple of moments in here which I really connected to like emotionally is the bit with Jonah where Jonah's like, look. This might be the big one. I've seen a lot. This might be it. Go see if this is your brother. Like, take the chance now because you may never have a chance again. There's that. And then the moment where Cindy is like, you know, she's she doesn't know a ton of people. She's racing through and she's going, going, going. And she's like, I tried to call Spidey. I tried to call Peter. And he's he's not available. He's probably involved in this. He's definitely involved in this. And that sense of like panic and fear and sadness and still at the same time like I am singularly focused on this effort I thought those were really done exceptionally well do you remember anything of like this part of the book talking with Robbie as he was going through it and then how did you feel about sort of having to tell a story that ends in this way I mean you know it's it's interesting things that I really liked about this run, and it's also relevant in issue seven, is Silk goes to therapy. And I just thought that was such a really effective choice and and made her so relatable to me. It's just like, kind of, I feel like thing is like, oh, you know, superheroes, they don't have, yeah, they have problems in that, like, they have to fight off, like, these huge, like, beasts and, like, mutants and all this stuff, but like to really dive into like the psychological issues that these types of characters might have. And specifically for Cindy, it's anxiety because of the trauma of what she went through. And, you know, I I love the scenes that he put in with the therapist. And I think issue seven kicks off with one of those scenes and and like you were talking about, you know, Ryan, like the the panic and the fear that she has of like, my time is running out, like this might be it. And I, I feel like that's a very, uh, again, relatable theme. Like, haven't we all felt like with a certain opportunity of like, this is the last chance for X, right? It's my last chance for love. It's my last chance to like get the job I want. It's my last chance, you know, to make things right with this person. And, and the way that he lays that out in such a personal way with Albert, her brother, I just thought was was pretty perfectly done. For you when crafting the end of the story, because man, what an emotional experience issue seven is here. Like, even separated from being in the contemporary moment of like Secret Wars is coming, you know, it's still so impactful and you really feel like the ground underneath your feet is crumbling itself. Kalinda, when you're writing a story, do you know in your head from the very beginning, this is where I want to end it. This is the emotional experience I want to end it on and beating the story out in that way. Or is it dependent on the just process? And you say, well, I, you know, I started out this way and I assumed I would end it with a big, crazy reveal. And then you come out the other side and you said, well, actually, there's a placid, lovely ending that I actually ended up with. Is that something you're thinking about the whole time or is that just something that you you kind of leave to the process? I definitely find it helpful to know what I'm writing towards. 
and to have a sense of an ending in mind. And that ending may change, but when I'm starting, it's like I kind of want a destination to punch into my GPS before I start the car because otherwise I can feel lost and like I'm not sure where, where the character is headed and where the story is headed. And so I try and do a good amount of brainstorming like before I'll actually start writing scripts in any medium to kind of figure out like, okay, what's the emotional journey? What's the the literal plot journey. And this is where I'd like to end up. And yes, that may change. Like we may put Albuquerque in the GPS and end up in Santa Fe, but you know, at least I have an idea of where I'm going. I definitely find that helpful. Well, I have found this conversation helpful. Kalinda, <laughs> thanks for coming on and talking silk and, and dishing some about Mr. Robbie Thompson who I miss dearly. Uh, please give him my warmest I regards. I will. He misses you <laughs> yeah. too. He told me so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is great. Everybody, of course, please read America Chavez Made in the USA. It's a ding-dang delight. We'll be talking more about it in the coming weeks as more issues get released. Clinda, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Tucker. This Thank was you. awesome. Take care. That was a conversation that, honestly, I, I really feel like I could have kept going with for hours. I'm so fascinated by Kalinda's storytelling abilities and stories and all those little tiny details that go into being a writer. I'm just so fascinated to hear. So what a delight, what a joy to be able to sit down for a little while and talk to Kalinda Vasquez. And like we've said, go out and read America Chavez Made in the USA. All right, this episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Pagos, Tucker, Marcus, Jorge Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager, a.k.a. the man thing. We all burn at his Slack messages <laughs> and his emails. Man is short for manager there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.